In this episode of the Business of E-Commerce, I talk with Derek O'Carroll about how to create a customer-focused omni-channel experience. This is the Business of E-Commerce, episode 106. Welcome to the Business of E-Commerce, the show that helps e-commerce retailers start, launch, and grow the e-commerce business. I'm your host, Charles Plesky, and I'm here today with Derek O'Carroll. Derek is a CEO of BrightPearl, a cloud-based ERP for retailers and wholesalers. At BrightPearl, he has redefined the go-to-market strategy and led innovations that have increased the deal size nearly 500% and yielded a 75% growth year over year. I've asked Derek on the show today to chat about how you create a customer-focused omni-channel experience. So hey, Derek, how are you doing today? I'm excellent, Charles. Delighted to be with you. Yeah, awesome to have you on the show. I love the topic, kind of the whole omni-channel and kind of bringing it all together. Um, First, real quick, Bright Pearl. You've been there how long? Uh, three and a half years, just over. I joined in May 2016. Gotcha. Okay. And cloud-based ERP. So for those who don't know, I feel like years ago, I feel like this, the term ERP was just this thing that like other people had. But then as you kind of grow, and you don't really know what it is, and you're like, ah, I don't need one of those. But as you grow, you start to realize, maybe, you know, you start to learn what it is and kind of realize who needs it and um, why. Can you explain real quick who needs an ERP, what is it, and kind of generally, like, how does it work? Well, I think uh, to be successful, any merchant needs to provide a very high level of personalized service, irrespective of the channel that they are using to engage with a client. That's, that's where everything starts. And in order to be able to do that, you have to orchestrate all of the operational tasks that come about when an, when an order hits your store through a point of sale, hits your marketplace through maybe an Amazon store you're running, or hits your website through your own website. And so retail uh, ERP, um, or cloud-based ERP as you called it, essentially the way I would ask your listeners to think about it is it's a central point to orchestrate all of your orders and all of the following on actions that you need to bring to bear upon those orders to get to the bottom line where you can see the holy grail of what's my uh, margin, what's my fully landed cost on each channel. And you need to know that because then you can decide how much do I order for the next season or the next phase. And also, uh, what's my pricing strategy in that particular channel? Because as we know, every single channel has a different uh, cost of doing business on it. And that's essentially what an EORP does. So it covers where people order from, how you handle that order. It covers fulfillment, logistics, payments, all the way through. So just think of the life cycle of a customer. And then think of all the tasks needed to, to serve that. Yeah, I'm always surprised so many retailers, um, once you start dealing, once you go multi-channel, right? So if you're just selling your basic story of a couple products, you know, it's, and you're shipping them from one place, it's pretty obvious your cost. But as soon as you expand beyond that, just kind of how it all ties together, um, you talk to a lot of retailers and they just kind of say, I know, I know I'm making money, but I'm not really sure what channel and how much. And it's almost just like, guesstimate. And at the end of the month, they just look at the bank account and, oh, it has more money than last month. I must be making money. But it's very, they don't know exactly what products, what channels. So it's one of those things that I think a lot of folks suffer from this once you start getting a little larger. I think once you go beyond about a million dollars GMV and you either need to look for, well, what's, where are my growth opportunities? I need to open up in other marketplaces. So you consider maybe going into Amazon or opening up with Walmart. Or you might consider, hey, we've got a cool product. Let's open up outside the United States and let's focus uh, in Germany, for example. 
And the key to that through the planning set is don't do that unless you understand, well, what are the costs going to be and how quickly can you get the product to the target customer? And it is amazing how many operations out there, mature companies that have been around for a while and also the, the sort of more assertive um, digital natives, for want of a better, a better expression, uh, they need to bridge that gap and they need to understand what the cost is going to be. And the place to start is actually at the customer because it obviously starts on what type of service you want to offer because that's going to impact the type of cost that you're going to bear. But it's amazing how many people just don't have any systems in place and no real clue about where their margin's coming from. Yeah, it's one of those things I was talking to a retail a while back and they do a lot of international and then they, I forget what country it was, some, somewhere in Europe where all of a sudden it went from, you know, like a single digit percentage import tax to like 35%. So like just that... It went from being like highly profitable to highly unprofitable, but just in this one country. And unless you yeah. really see that, you could completely miss that very easily. Well, you've got that on the international side, and then you've got the obviously the the ever changing landscape on the U.S. sales tax side as well, uh, which is obviously another another um, area of unknowns. And uh, that's why you need solutions like Avalara or TaxJar to get a handle on that. But the other element as well on sales channels and the, the and how the cost changes over time. Like a lot of our customers use Amazon, but Amazon are masters at changing their charge structure and their pricing mechanism and getting a handle on that at a systemized level. So you can see what changes are new, what's the year on year comparison with regard to changes. Am I paying more? Am I paying less? Getting that level of granularity is really important for merchants who want to be serious about getting to the 10 and the 50 and the 100 million GMV mark. Below, below a million, you don't need an ERP solution. You can, you can just put this together like with a nice Shopify or big commerce store, plug it into zero, and then just manage everything through spreadsheets. It's only when you get into scale and complexity that it just becomes untenable uh, in terms of the time of hours that you need to spend. And obviously, the key thing, back to the point on customers, is you end up doing manual tasks, and with manual tasks comes error, and with error comes uh, pissed off customers. Yeah, and what ends up most people is they kind of just don't do it. They kind of just like, oh, guess at that point, right? So you kind of see people that under a million, they're kind of just essentially still guessing. But once you get over that, if you're off, then being off matters a lot more, right? So being off by a couple percentage really moves the needle. Correct. Yeah. And, and a, lot of, a lot of people at that realm of a million, up to even uh, five million, I've, I've, I've come across companies that have sort of cobbled it together. And then now they want to get to the next level, so they need this visibility. But they rely upon individuals to keep it all in their heads and spreadsheets. Uh, and those individuals work crazy hours. And the problem with that is if you get any massive change in your business, maybe at a peak time or an unknown time, you're going to burn out and introduce the error factor, which results, we know, uh, into poor customer experience. Gotcha. So when we say customer-focused omnichannel, right, first, I guess, if if someone's been hiding under a rock for the past like you know five ten years, let's define omni-channel. But then, kind of let's go into the whole customer-focused part of that. Yeah, so omni-channel. It just it's multi-channel. Um, it, it's it's having uh, the ability to buy a product in the physical and virtual world in different ways, whether it's direct in physical or through a wholesaler, or online, direct or through a marketplace, um, or be able to sell the same product. Skew, but with a different branding across all channels automatically. That that that's essentially what it means. And then customers, from a customer perspective, the complexity kicks in when they go, okay, I'm going to buy from multiple channels, but I want the same level of service. 
I want you to remember me the same irrespective of what channel I get into and engage with your brand. And if you don't treat me in the same way, I'm going to, you're going to erode empathy, which is the precursor to trust, which is obviously the, the, the key to lifetime value. So that's the, that's the complexity that sits on Omnichannel. It's a great term, but when you apply it to the expectation of the customers, the costs start mounting because to offer that same level of service, you need to have a cloud-based solution in place that's helping you automate all of the complexities that arise there. But that's what Omnichannel means from my perspective. Do you mainly see customers buying at retail point of sale and then coming online? Or is this, when you say um, the, cust the same customer with different channels, is this literally like a Shopify store and an Amazon? Or is this point of sale and then your direct store? So we, we've got three profiles of customers that come to us. Um, one is the um, uh, online only. So digital natives, whatever you want to call them, they don't have any stores. They've typically set up the business in the last five to six years. They've got a really cool product and they're focused on global expansion through all digital channels. That's, that's probably one of our, that's our primary channel at the moment. The second one, which is growing year over year, is the more established bricks and mortar. Maybe they have three, four or 50 stores and uh, they can see that uh, customers are asking for, uh, I want to have an experience online or I want to be able to buy online and drop off in store or pick up in store. That's the second category. And then the third category is the large corporates, uh, like very large companies that have legacy systems that have been in place for years and they need to move quickly. And what they're doing is sort of segmenting out the whole area of online and working with companies like Bright Pearl to plug that into their legacy systems to, to sort of get halfway there. Obviously, there's, there's great expense there. But, there. but there are the three types of uh, customers that we see. And it's interesting, in the U.S., uh, we see more brands that are direct-to-consumer, you know, cool products on the money and really going after it and establishing very strong lifetime value with the customers. And then on the international side, um, we see a higher degree of complexity requirements coming in the door. So when, when companies that are trading international are working in Europe, for example, they do tend to have a much higher bar that they're trying to get to in terms of solution complexity. And I think that's just down to the markets they, they operate in. But that's, that's probably the profile coverage um, that we see. Got it. So now let's say someone is selling their brand, selling direct to consumer, um, orders coming in. What what are some ways they can start hitting multi-channel and using that across the same consumers to raise kind of the lifetime value of, of those uh, buyers? Right. So, so um, I think the first thing where I see success, so, so uh, as opposed to my opinion, where I've seen brands sort of blow up, knock it out of the park, is they don't come to us initially with technical requirements. They come to us with the customer lifecycle journey or the customer journey that they want their client to experience. And they come to us with very well thought through brand values. Even small companies do this. And we see this uh, in combination with someone in that team who has got very strong, uh, shall we say, operational experience. And then the second thing that they do is to say, here's the customer experience we want to offer. Uh, and then here is what we think the operational uh, workflows, for want of a better expression, need to be to make that experience a reality. So for example, having a single source of truth and having the ability to 
uh, always track customer history in terms of their engagement with you, what they buy, where they buy, what channels. So you can always focus on that data um, in a responsible manner in certain markets as per the requirements. And, uh, and out of those two lenses come the technical uh, specifications. So when a lot of times we see customers coming to us uh, or prospects and they have a long, long list of technical stuff that they want to achieve. And we sit down with them and say, well, that's great, but can we have a look at what the customer requirements are and what experience you want to light up? Because, and we do that because technology is not, it's not the whole solution. You need to have the technology with the people side of the equation and the brand experience that's really crucial. And that's really important for direct-to-consumer brands, so digital natives. They really nail that. Um, less, less obvious is the more established bricks and mortar brands. They don't come to us with the requirements around customer experience. They come with more technical requirements on distributed order management, automated accounting, whatever it is. So we see success being derived when brands start at the customer and map out that journey and then spend time to link it to the ops requirements that then links to the spec requirements for a technology provider like BrightPro. So let's say I'm a brand, I'm sitting out there, I'm listening, and I want to kind of focus more on that kind of customer experience, but I haven't really thought through what that should be like. What are some examples of just different things that have been successful and where you'd even recommend someone get started when they want to kind of think through that customer journey interacting with your brand? Well, the, the first thing is for that. So let's assume that the person understands who their target pro profile is, who the customer is, what the, core, what the cohort is, so to speak, and where, what it is that they use to identify with a brand. So what are the empathy points? So, for example, um, obviously, you've got to have a cool, cool product that resonates. But what are the things that you're going to do that differentiate above the product? Um, so, for example, we're going to offer uh, the basics of free returns or we're going to be known for um, uh, what, what the term is omni-channel returns. So being able to buy online and pick up in store. So these are called sort of non-functional differentiators that are above, above and beyond the product. And then really get very clear on what that is going to be. And then you actually move from there. So a couple of brands that do that really well uh, are companies like Trafia, uh, brand companies like Trafia in um, South America. They are very, very strong on building that sort of brand journey. And one of their brands is um, a whole range of spandex for, for ladies. And their success in the global market has been built out about their maniacal focus on that customer journey and then linking it back to the operational requirements. But at a simple level, it's the same level of service in all channels. That's what they're offering. Now, they're a digital native company. But uh, coming to mind, they would be a great example of, of that on direct-to-consumer. And then on B2B, someone like uh, Grower's House out of Arizona, uh, they specialize in providing the equipment, uh, hydroponics equipment for, for, for growing uh, all sorts of um, product. And uh, those guys focus on product range, availability, cost of delivery. So it's much sort of, it's more about the B2B journey for them. And both those customers uh, would obviously use a hybrid platform by like Brightworld. And, and that's important. Today, any platform that you use on an operational basis needs to handle 
not only all the multiple markets, but it's got to be direct consumer capable, but also B2B capable. That, that's crucial because you need that flexibility. Yeah, I feel like that's one of those things that people overlook with the whole B2B. Um, it's one of those things you start off direct to consumer and it works great. But if you can get any kind of B2B sales going, there, this like once they go, it's this fantastic, magical thing that happens. Um, I see so many people just overlooking that completely or folks focused 100% on that. But realizing you can kind of bridge the gap of doing some B2B. And the nice part with that is a lot of it's reoccurring. They'll just put in large orders. Um, but a lot of folks just ignore that or focus 100% on it, I kind of found. Yeah, no, I, I think um, the, the, the emergence of hybrid merchants that are really working to, I'd say, bifurcate their strategies. So they go, okay, we're direct to consumer in our market where we are home. So we're in the US, we're direct to consumer. And they might then deploy a B2B strategy in international markets in combination with checking out a marketplace strategy through something like Amazon or leveraging Amazon's B2B marketplace, which is which is a big, big area to look at for that potential um, uh, growth, as long as you understand the costs and are in a position to understand the cost. That's key. But you're absolutely right. I mean, that hybrid flexibility is crucial. And, you know, we've been on a 10 year bull run in the markets and uh, any retailer is going to be thinking about, ooh, when's it going to end? And um, we, we continually have this chat with customers about being recession ready. Uh, probably in the last sort of year, year and a half, it hasn't happened yet. Everything's going really good. But to be recession ready, you've got to be super flexible and being able to do what you just said, very quickly open up a B2B channel or a market-based channel in another country and leverage all your investments just to get more sales in the door. Um, and, and then the second thing is to invest in tech so you're not subject to the, you know, when you get peak trades, you have to hire a bunch of people to serve that trade. So it's people who are, have a high degree of automation in their business model. They are also, uh, in, in combination to what you said, sort of getting ready for being recession proof. A lot of my clients are worried about that. Yeah, we're definitely hearing more of that. It's odd. We've, it's almost been a year now and they keep talking about it and it hasn't come, but everyone's kind of like on edge here. <laughs> everyone's biting their, biting their uh, uh, fingernails. But it, I think it's just to sit down, any owner just sit down and say, okay, what? What are we going to do if that happens and sales tank by 40%? Um, and a lot, it's just human nature not to do that. But I'm, I'm seeing more and more of our clients sort of looking at that. Um, and anyone who's subject to, you know, if they look at their cost base, and they've got a high percentage of people in the back office. They're subject to, if they're successful, their margin gets eroded because they have to hire more people. But if, um, and they have the higher error rate. But then if, uh, they have to let people go. It's knowledge that leaves the door. And that knowledge, back to your earlier point, is like all the nuanced stuff that the, in those people's heads. And that's another risk as well. So, yeah, it's um, I'm just hearing that a lot. Got to be recession proof. Yeah. It's, uh, so it's Sparkshipping. We actually have a Bright Pearl uh, connection and kind of help with automation there. And yes, yeah, absolutely. Of, and like that's one of those things that it scales, right, where you have your base price, but as you know, order flow is coming in, it's, you know, if you 10x order flow, the cost isn't 10x, right, on a lot of these things. And that's kind of the, the beauty of this automation that you have the cost to install it, but it doesn't go up from there. Um, and yeah, there's a floor too, so. Yeah, I mean, um, the cost per order drops, obviously, as the, vo as the volume goes up. And I think the other aspect is um, that the, the labor market 
and the amount of attrition in the labor market that is uh, inherent in merchants. You know, that's very high levels of attrition, 27 to 30 percent, depending upon which country you look at. And um, and in particular, people who are not using or who are using warehousing or their own warehousing, that's even a higher risk. So that's a big area that we ask our clients to focus on uh, to get super efficient, explore drop shipping, understand the cost with Amazon, maybe use FBA in certain markets, whatever, um, because that's very high attrition. And when people leave, they take the knowledge and then the new people come in and then you've got to train them up on all the processes that you're running uh, to keep your customers happy. What would you recommend out there? Let's say someone's sitting there, they've had orders kind of coming in for a while, but they're, they're building this customer list, but they don't really know the lifetime value of any given customer. They don't have any sort of segmentation. So they don't really know, hey, you know, orders coming in from X are the lifetime value of these customers. They're coming back 10X to compared to Amazon customers. It may just hit us once and then it's over. Where would someone start to kind of start pulling that data together and to get that view of how customers are actually interacting with their brand. So I would, so you're talking about smaller customers just starting out, just starting off for you. It's, I feel like I've seen some relatively large retailers that are turning over, you know, a lot of orders, but they kind of just coming in and they're not really looking at, they're just looking at each order, but not at a customer level. And I kind of see that as a kind of this common thing. They're looking at order level, but not customer level. Um, where does someone yeah. start with that? So you, you you need to have the customer at the center of all records. So by design, that needs to be your outcome. Um, if you're large and you're over a million dollars, well, then you need to talk to someone like Bright Pearl, obviously, because that's what we do. But if you're small and you're just starting out, I would recommend uh, something like uh, Big Commerce or Shopify, one of the easily cu customizable stores plugged into, because um, it's obviously just going to be a single channel. And you could plug something in to that, like maybe Glue reporting, or there's a whole bunch of reporting tools out there that are very easy um, to plug into the data source that uh, Shopify uh, builds up. And then you'd be able to get a picture. The complexity arises when you need to start serving omni-channel and when you need to start looking at history and all of the scale issues that come about that and payments and all, and all of that sort of stuff. But if you're just below a million, I would get a big commerce store or a Shopify store and plug it into uh, something like Glue and you'll start lighting up uh, those type of, I call them key KPIs. And then if you're bigger, uh, you need to have a distributed order management solution or a cloud ERP as you call it. There's all sorts of terminologies out there. Um, we actually just state, we define ourselves as a retail ops platform or a retail operation platform, a single place to do all that sort of stuff. But yeah, that, that's what I would recommend. Um, and those tools have become very capable in the last three years. I mean, I don't know if you've been looking at it, but business analytics or AI or whatever you want to call it, it's just, it's had so much private VC money into it in the last three, four years. Those products are all now out there and really powerful at giving you insights from a data perspective. Got it. I want to go back to what you said a moment ago about kind of the warehousing. Are you, seeing, mm -hmm. are you seeing a lot of folks run their own warehouse or going to a 3PL or using something like FBA? Like, what are people doing? And I kind of like the idea, too, um, of using different warehousing, right? Because you see a lot of folks, they're either all or none, right? They either, I'm going to build my warehouse or I'm going to go to this, you know, 3PL. But the truth is you can have a lot of these different things and kind of glue them together where they make sense. What do you kind of see there? 
Well, I think what we tell our customers is have a strategy that enables flexibility, either for periods of growth or periods, uh, i.e. demand, or periods of decline, uh, recession-proof, as we said. And there's the three sort of area, there's sort of four options. You can have your 3PLs, and we see much more 3PL penetration in the U.S. markets than we do in, in EMEA. We see it in EMEA, like it's obviously a very popular uh, service that people sign up to. But it's really, it, it, it's, it's very heavily used and penetrated in the U.S. Um, we also see... Why, why is that, you think? I, I think it's around the single market lens and the fact that 3PLs in the U.S. have just established with more coverage and scale, whereas in Europe, it's, it's more difficult to get scale across Europe. It just takes a longer time because you're working on, you know, you're working in the European Union, but it still just takes longer. So I think that's the, that's the case. Some of your readers might have, a, might have a point of view or listeners. That's the first thing. Then, uh, then we say, okay, if that's your primary uh, strategy, you're going to use 3PL. Um, are you looking at um, drop shipping and how are you going to do that? And then are you uh, exploring um, either using uh, Amazon's FBA or Shopify's new fulfillment service that they're, well, actually they haven't released it yet, but, but they're sort of talking about that. And have a hybrid approach because it's all about flexibility, as we said, to deal with volume and decline. Um, and then the other option, and we do see this actually, is customers take on the investment uh, for their own warehousing. And they usually will have their own warehouse in the countries of they, that they operate in. And then they uh, augment that with Amazon FBA in other countries or a 3PL. And it's a hybrid approach. And the key thing uh, to your point is you need to have a centralized system that is managing and tracking all of the complexity that arises because you then need to deal with the demands of the customer because they might buy a product and then there's a return and then you've got to process that return, account for it, and then deal with the customer um, in, an, in, a, in a responsible manner to maintain your reviews or refurbish that product for resale in another brand and another channel. So that's when you get into the real, the real uh, nuts, nuts and bolts of it. Now, we... We do offer uh, an integrated WMS solution that just comes part of our solution, but it's really aimed at the sort of customers between 1 million and 20 million. And beyond 20 million, you get into a whole bunch of complexity in the warehouse, and we'd uh, recommend third parties. WMS, let's define that. That's warehouse management system. Got it. Okay. So basically a solution that allows the people to walk around the warehouse, go to the right spot, pick a product and make sure it's got the right label and gets shipped or vice versa if that product gets returned from a customer. Yeah, I feel like what a lot of people miss, because a lot of people are doing this kind of hybrid with drop shipping, their own warehousing, all kind of different things happening. And what you kind of miss is you might be sending, someone might place an order and then half of it comes from your warehouse, half comes from a drop shipper, but then they might return a piece of that order. What do they return oh, man. that to? Like what happens there? And 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 the key, like this is the this is the underbelly of omnichannel. This is where the darkness sits because how do you ensure that you have got uh, a an auditable record so that you can tell the customer what the state or the process where they are in the process? But more importantly, for for retailers, like what's the cost of that, and and how are you recording that cost, and how are you using that to negotiate better three PL rates or to fight the Amazon FBA bill, but good luck with that. You know, so uh, you're absolutely right. That's where the complexity sits. And that's where the customer experience, back to our discussion earlier on, being having a very clear view on what you're capable of in terms of the experience you want to offer your customers. Um, 
you know, be very careful of taking on too much because there's this underbelly of complexity that sits underneath. You've got to get get really good in one channel, get really good in another, but, you know, go slow to go fast almost for your smaller companies that, that are listening. Yeah, is that kind of what you'd recommend there to help, I don't know, how to help alleviate this problem? Because I feel like you can, ver there's 99% of orders that kind of, you get the order, send it out, customer's happy, everything's great. But there's this percent of orders that it's a split order, it comes from different places, half of it gets returned. And then at that point, you don't even know, do we make money with this order? Do we lose money? Like how much, like you have literally almost no idea what happened, like what the financials are, or even sometimes, like you said, how do you even get those products back into stock? Because now can you resell them? Are they part of some referral? Yeah. Like what happens there? Any kind of, well, you say, yeah. You, you say 99, 99%. Um, but in oh, yeah. certain, what is that percent? I guess would be a better question. Well, in certain sectors, it's like 35%. And in, wow. in fashion, it's 40%. It goes even higher if you're selling to younger, younger um, prospects or younger That's customers. 40% that are just orders in, in, happy and done. Orders, and they, and they, well, or, no, sorry, 60% are happy. Okay. And 40% go into the return cycle. And uh, some of the luxury brands, they get uh, all sorts of challenges around uh, return, serial returners and uh, even things like Instagram fraud where people buy the product, they take a picture of themselves wearing it and then they return it. So you've got to be very analytical and have a system that gives you real granularity to your earlier point around the customer because any system needs to have the customer and the order very, very uh, at its core, so to speak, and everything needs to derive from that. Um, because then you're in a position to understand what is the lifetime value by cohort of a customer. And you can do things like identify serial returners uh, automatically and then use that to drive your promotions and your campaigning through, you know, whether you're using um, whatever MailChimp or Clavio or whatever you're using to, to, to drive your, your marketing campaigns. And if you have a person trying to figure all that, that, that out, you're going to make mistakes. Whereas if you have a... Um, uh, a retail ops platform, that's essentially what it's doing. It's creating that timely, accurate, and complete record of your customer at any time so that you can decide what you do uh, with regard to marketing and service, but also you're creating your accounts in real time. Because that's the other thing that uh, BriPearl uh, does because it's a, an ERP, it creates the journals of your accounts so you know exactly what's costing you when. And that's crucial. Um, for any of the larger retailers. That said, some of our smaller customers are very happy with Zero or QuickBooks, and we just plug into those journals and off you go. You get the same outcome at the end of the day. Yeah, I feel like being able to target something like you said, a serial, a serial returner. Um, I've never heard that term, but I can see that happening. And you might even have an entire segment um, of just saying, hey, all my orders that come in from Instagram have a 50% return rate versus my ones that come in direct maybe it's 10%. So maybe you well, start to get an understanding of that. Yeah, and, and as long as you have so, uh, the, the central record of those transactions, you can report on that. Yep. And that's, that's crucial because that drives your decision-making. Okay, what's my pricing strategy going to be in that channel? Or what's my pricing strategy going to be for that cohort of customer type, that thousand people that keep on returning stuff? What am I going to do? Because you don't want to make the mistake of cutting them off or being punitive because you might look behind it and look at their lifetime value over the year and find out it's seven times higher than your normal first-time customer. So, and then you make a decision of, oh, we've got the basis of maybe plugging in a loyalty program 
uh, and going from there. So back to what we said earlier on, you know, it's go slow to go fast as you build your optimum experience around the customer and then your operational fee uh, requirements will become apparent. And that's essentially what we do with, uh, with clients. You know, we, we scope out clients' requirements before we sign on, on a contract. So we spend a huge amount of time making sure that they understand what the life cycle is on experience, but also what the workflows are. And then we help them tease out what the requirements are and what their goals are. And then we sign a contract with them. And that's pretty unique in the market yep. because we know this is a, is a minefield. It's a minefield of complexity. And we've got to hold our clients' uh, hands through it. So we're, um, it's actually one of our major differentiators. And I think one of the reasons why we're growing so quickly. Got it. So before I let you go, kind of one of my takeaways from this, um, that it sounds like to tie it all back and sounds super important, is having that single source of truth, right? Because without that, this is all kind of, you're just kind of cobbling together data from different places. Is that really, is that kind of one of the biggest things you'd recommend to a retailer of just making sure they have one place where they can at least pull their data from and start doing reporting, but at least collecting it to one location? Or where else would you kind of recommend no, no, kind of focus? I, I, mean, I mean, that is it. It's a single source of truth. And as we said earlier on, if you're an established company, that's going to be a challenge because you've got lots of existing legacy systems in place. So you need to decide, well, what, how, what's our path going to be to get there? And that means addressing some legacy issues. And there's a, there's a lot of complexity around that path. But the, and that's why some of those uh, retailers are struggling because on the real world, their costs are going up and the footfall is going down, which opens up the opportunity for the people out there that have really cool brands. And there's a massive opportunity for those people to start with a single source of data from day one and grow from there uh, because they're, that's essentially what the characteristic or anatomy of a successful merchant is today is data. It's all about data. Amazon showed the way. Companies like us, Bright Pearl, are giving tools that emulate that capability to have a single source of data that's timely, accurate, and complete and customer-centric. And if you have that profile, uh, you're, you're, you're halfway there because obviously you've got to have a cool product and all that sort of good stuff. Awesome. I think that's super helpful. If people want to learn more about you, more about Bright Pearl, what can they do so? Oh, just go to brightpearl.com and uh, we'd be happy to talk to any of your listeners. Awesome. Thanks a lot for coming on the show today. It's great chatting. Oh, thanks very much. It was a real pleasure. Cheers, Charles.